The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. June 15th, 2020, or day 15 of year zero, if you prefer. We live in a world of ignorance, a present day so stunted and in love with itself that it has lost the imaginative capacity to understand the entirety of human history, except through the lens of the narcissism of our own time. On this show... We like history and we regard the project to abolish it all as civilizational terrorism, because if you have no past, you have no future. Half a millennium ago today, June the 15th, 1520, Pope Leo X, he was one of those Medici fellas, issued his papal bull Exerge Domine, Arise, O Lord, threatening to excommunicate the author of 95 Theses or Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, published in Germany by the Professor of Moral Theology at the University of Wittenberg, Martin Luther. Uh, Once upon a time, I'd have uh, explained that Martin Luther was the guy who spent 62 years warming up the name for Martin Luther King. He was like an out-of-town tryout for Dr. King. Uh, But contemplating the march of the morons around the Western world, I'm not convinced that these guys have even heard of Martin Luther King, never mind Martin Luther without the king, so it's hardly worth bothering with my old gag, is it? His Holiness the Pope was withering about Dr. Luther. With the advice and consent of these our venerable brothers, with mature deliberation on each and every one of the above theses, and by the authority of Almighty God, the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and our own authority, we condemn, reprobate, and reject completely each of these theses or errors as either heretical, scandalous, false, offensive to pious ears, or seductive of simple minds, and against Catholic truth. By listing them, we decree and declare that all the faithful of both sexes... Both sexes, eh? Ah, those were the days. This pontiff guy is going full-scale J.K. Rowling. Time to tear down his statue. The faithful of both sexes must regard them as condemned, reprobated and rejected. Pope Leo X, 500 years ago this very day, Martin Luther was excommunicated the following year, 1521, and thus began the Protestant Reformation. That used to be a big deal. Uh, 50 years ago today, 50 years ago, Charles Manson went on trial for the murder of Mrs. Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, and her friends. Here is Miss Tate as a Danish tourist board official in one of her last films opposite Dean Martin in The Wrecking Crew. Who we? We, we, what's we? Us, you and me. Hmm. My orders from the tourist bureau are to work directly under you. Directly? The first order is to get out of here. Yes, sir. Hmm. Yes, Ah, I would like to live in a land that never 
devoted that kind of buoyant soundtrack music to its affairs by Hugo Montenegro. But alas, instead... I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. I don't think I can improve on Ted Cruz's summation of the weekend. Quote, the modern left, they cancel Gone with the Wind and then they burn Atlanta. Indeed. The march of the morons continues. Here is Kathy Newman of the supposed Thinking Man's nightly news show in Britain, the Channel 4 News. Here's Kathy Newman interviewing Lorraine Jones. Uh, not just any old community activist, but the chairperson of the Lambeth Independent Police Advisory Group. Should the statue of Churchill be there or not, do you think? Well, I've heard uh, many arguments on both sides. Some say that he's a racist. Some say that he's a hero. I haven't personally met him. But what I would say is that that question of whether he should remain should be put to the community. That's Ms Lorraine Jones on Sir Winston Churchill. Quote, I haven't personally met him, but I did have a pina colada with Neville Chamberlain and I once did the Macarena with Lord Halifax. Interestingly, Kathy Newman, who briefly became famous around the world for her aggressive interviewing technique, putting words in Jordan Peterson's mouth. So what you're really saying is... So what you're really saying is... So what you're really saying is, Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman this time just let it slide. She didn't say... So what you're saying is, Ms. Jones, is you have no idea who this Churchill guy is or that he's been dead for over half a century. Because if she'd done that, if she disrespected a Black Lives Matter activist, the next interview Kathy Newman would have been conducting would have been with the security guard uh, escorting her out of the building. So what you're really saying is I'm fired and I'll never work in television again. Jessica Mulroney, daughter-in-law of a former Canadian Prime Minister and BFF of Meghan Markle, will not be working in television again. She's been fired from her CTV show up north and from Good Morning America down south. Her sin was being insufficiently supportive of Black Lives Matter, not opposed to it, just not quite as enthusiastically gung-ho for all its works as you're meant to be. And when she was called on it, she played the Megan card super ineptly and said that her very best friend was black. Now Megan is being advised by showbiz columnists to dump Jessica. I'm going to humbly suggest you get some new friends fast warns Bernadette Giacomazzo. It's not enough to topple statues of Columbus and Jefferson Davis out in the street. You've also got to clear out the latter-day Confederate generals in your own Rolodex. Sure, the Duchess of Sussex may genuinely like Mrs Mulroney, uh, and in that sense they deserve each other, but this is no time to let real human relations take priority over someone's failure to put a Black Lives Matter hashtag on their Twitter feed. Are you embarrassed to be living in a town named after a total racist, but you don't want to go to the expense of renaming and ordering up all the new municipal stationery, changing the street signs, etc.? It can work out pretty expensive. Pierre Leroux, mayor of Russell Township in eastern Ontario, thinks he has a solution. 
His rather agreeable municipality is named after Peter Russell, one-time acting administrator of Upper Canada, Speaker of the Legislative Council and a judge on the Court of King's Bench. Mr Russell was a complex fellow. He was a big supporter of the rights of Indians in Upper Canada. But he had also been a slave owner at one point in his life. So rather than rename the town Meganville or Markleopolis, the mayor wants to keep the name Russell, but simply find another person called Russell they can claim it's named after. Apparently King County in Washington State did this way back when. King County was named after William Rufus Devane King, who traded in slaves. So they simply changed the name of King County to King County after Martin Luther King. Likewise, Russell Township wants to rename itself after another Russell. Don't know quite who they got in mind. Maybe Jane Russell, for whom Howard Hughes designed an impressively cantilevered brassiere. Vavavoom, Russell Township. Uh, this is a win-win solution. Uh, if your town's named after Jefferson Davis, why not rename it after beloved entertainer Sammy Davis or mass murderer Alan Lee Davis? That last one might also work if the neighbouring town is named after Robert E. Lee and you're thinking of a municipal merger. There's no end to the white supremacists out there. In Leicester, England, there are demands to take down the statue of Gandhi on the grounds that he was, quote, a fascist, racist and sexual predator. So he's some sick combination of Churchill, Jefferson Davis and Matt Lauer. So he's got to go. Here's Mahatma and what's your hurry? Uh, notwithstanding the fact that when asked what he thought of Western civilization, he quipped that he thought it would be a good idea. Uh, so he was ahead of the game of Black Lives Matter on that one. If your town is named after Gandhi... Uh, it might just be simpler to consider renaming it for Confederate General Robert E. Gandhi. Do you know G.H. Eliot? He was a big musical star in the early decades of the 20th century, billed as the chocolate-covered coon. The British comedian Harry Enfield referred to him by that billing on the BBC the other day, and his interviewer had the vapours, and he's now being excoriated as a racist himself. Mr. Eliot performed in blackface and white tie and tails and was very popular. She is the lily of Laguna. She is my lily and my rose. A song about an Indian maiden who lives in a cave that Queen Soraya of Afghanistan is said to have enjoyed one night at the Coliseum in London. History can be uh, intriguingly nuanced, but ours is not a time for that. G.H. Eliot is buried in the churchyard of St. Margaret's in Rottingdean, Sussex, as is Alice Banford, who also performed in blackface. Now their white gravestones are themselves wearing blackface. The vicar ordered them to be covered in black garbage bags, bin liners, as the British say, and their graves are now being considered for more permanent obliteration. How can a man of even as attenuated a faith as a Church of England vicar deny a parishioner his final resting place? We are all sinners, but the modish twerps of the Anglican priesthood will not defend the eternal truths. Only the pieties of the moment, and who needs religion for that? So we've advanced now from smashing statues to smashing graves. Just like the ruined Jewish cemetery I visited in Tangiers a couple of years back. We are on a continuum here from smashing statues to smashing graves. 
and somewhere along that continuum, they'll be smashing skulls. Something's going to break here, and it will not easily be put together again. Right now, the energy is on one side only. A radical, nihilist, totalitarian movement is dragging the mainstream way too far. People who should have sat this out, by which I mean businessmen, people who make TV shows and sell underwear and cups of coffee, instead chose to take a side. Uh, like Yorkshire Tea and PG Tips, who both told their customers that if you don't support Black Lives Matter, don't drink our tea. We don't want your business. So they have politicised, politicised, even a nice cup of tea. I like a nice cup of tea in the morning for to start the day you see. So if you don't support Black Lives Matter, you can't have a nice cup of Yorkshire tea or PG tips. Never glad, confident, morning cupper again. They don't want you. Woke capitalism is telling half its customers to piss off. As I said, people who should have sat this thing out have been Twitter-shamed into siding with totalitarian revolutionaries because they don't want to end up like Jessica Mulroney. Meanwhile, people who should be taking a side, like all America's so-called conservative leaders, i.e. the grifters of conservative ink, have nothing to say about... The abolition of history. Do you give money to the Heritage Foundation? What a nice name. What the hell is that thing doing for America's heritage right now? Where's National Review, which prides itself on standing athwart history, yelling stop? We could use a little of that right now. But is there anything less athwart than National Review? That leaves you and me. When you look at what happens to the beautiful people, to the Jessica Mulroney's and the J.K. Rowling's, you may well want to keep your head down and hope the fire burns out. But it's raging. And the forlorn hope that this will all just sputter away to nothing will not be an option for much longer. You may not be interested in the reign of terror, but the reign of terror is interested in you. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. For three months in this space, we have chronicled the insanely officious behaviour of police in the United Kingdom under their apparently unlimited lockdown powers. They have ordered the citizenry back into their homes for the hitherto unknown crimes of sitting alone on a park bench, buying non-essential uh, items such as Easter eggs, standing still on the pavement and therefore perambulating insufficiently to meet the definition of the state-permitted daily exercise, playing with their children in their front gardens, playing Shostakovich, on a violin in their front gardens. And yet these tough guys, so eager to bully 
and indeed handcuffs single women strolling in the public space sink to their knees in the street in front of a real threat to public order. Here is a scene from last week in which the mob orders a policeman at the entrance to Downing Street at the junction with uh, Whitehall near the Cenotaph, the great uh, war memorial by Sir Edwin Lutyens that they hideously defaced. The mob orders the policeman to take a knee. And the man, if you'll forgive the expression, the man complies. The Metropolitan Police, eager to send six coppers to take down a young lady walking in the park, but too craven to stand up to anarchist mobs. One reason I entirely despise Her Britannic Majesty's Constabulary is because of their curious priorities. As I learned myself during a few days in the unlovely town of Rotherham, it's not just that they did nothing about the thousands of young girls taken into sex slavery and gang-raped. Turning a blind eye wasn't enough for these evil policemen. They also actively obstructed any efforts by the girls to get their stories out, up to and including the destruction of evidence and physical threats. One notes also that the disgusting police force on whose watch all the gang rape occurred, also the first to turn up in numbers and bundle Tommy Robinson into a police van if he happens to be standing outside a courthouse and he's holding a microphone. The determination to shoot the messenger is now deeply inculcated into a corrupted police culture reduced in the coinage of my old chum John O'Sullivan to being the paramilitary wing of the Guardian. And we have had another example of that in recent days. After three months of outrageous, heavy-handed micro-policing of every perceived infraction of the Magna Covid, the police groveled before thousands of people trampling all the corona rules into the dust. Even the wanker coppers who weren't taking a knee nevertheless stood down as the Jacobins vandalised the statuary of Parliament Square, attacking even the founder of modern policing, Sir Robert Peel. But led a relatively small number of those few Britons not ashamed of their glorious history, let a relatively small number of Britons take to the streets to defend the statues of Churchill and Peel and the war memorials from further desecration, and the Metropolitan Police are out there in force in the full Robocop. How the brave defenders of London's statuary hooted and jeered. As you know, it is our policy on The Mark Stein Show not to use profanity, mainly because the F word hasn't been edgy since Brendan Behan and Ken Tynan and Peregrine Worsthorn blazed their filthy trail on the BBC over half a century ago. But we're making an exception for this crowd, taunting the coppers as they attempt to prevent Englishmen from defending their heritage. From defending their heritage that the useless coppers will not defend. And so they taunted the Metropolitan Police with a highly pertinent taunt. Where the bleep were you last week? <laughs>
coppers are not upholders of law, but collaborators in the descent into anarchy. I think uh, the uh, defenders of the statuary were trying to sing that to the tune of Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, Bread of Heaven, and not entirely succeeding. So let me tip my hat to them with our mega wanker mix. All together now. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Your Brit mega wanker coppers in a time of looting as in a time of lockdown. The Metropolitan Police. Sit back, relax, and join Mark Stein each evening for the latest chapter of our newest tale for our time, G.K. Chesterton's famous novel, The Man Who Was Thursday. Undercover policemen pose as anarchists, and undercover poets pose as undercover policemen in this metaphysical thriller. Tune into Stein Online nightly to listen to the serialization in real time. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the whole back catalog of Tales for Our Time by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Because I was guest hosting for Rush, we missed our regular Friday Poem of the Week. So here uh, instead is a Monday poem to start the week. The statues in Parliament Square at Westminster are of British subjects, whether from home or abroad. That's to say there are English Prime Ministers, Lord Palmerston and Sir Robert Peel, and certain Commonwealth figures such as two sons of South Africa, Field Marshal Smuts and Nelson Mandela. Parliament Square's only foreigner, as that term is defined in British law, is the statue of Abraham Lincoln. A gift from America, unveiled in 1920 by the Duke of Connaught. A few days ago it was vandalised and defaced with the initials BLM and with apparently worthier names, such as Michael Brown of Ferguson fame. I wonder whether the rampaging mob had any idea who Lincoln is. Here is a poem by one of the first famous writers of America's Pacific Northwest. Ella Higginson became a published author in 1875 at the age of 14 when the Oregon City Enterprise accepted her poem Dreams of the Past. She wrote poetry and short stories and essays, almost all from her home in Bellingham, Washington. She was also the first female campaign manager for the first female member of the Washington State Legislature, Frances Axtell, a cousin of Grover Cleveland. This poem was written three decades after Lincoln's assassination, and it never mentions his name because it doesn't need to. The first statue to Lincoln was of plaster, uh, unveiled in San Francisco in 1866, the year after his death, soon replaced by a metal version which was consumed in the fire following the 1906 earthquake. So the earliest statue still with us is in Washington from 1868, standing outside what's now of all unworthy venues, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, in the presence of whose third-rate jurists I have had 
the misfortune to find myself. The famous Lincoln Memorial in Washington would not be completed until 1922. So this is a poem by Mrs. Higginson about someone who wishes to have the skills to sculpt purely in order to sculpt someone worthy of being memorialized in such a form. First published by Macmillan in 1898 from When the Birds Go North Again by Ella Higginson, a poem called simply The Statue. That I might chisel a statue line on line out of a marble's chaste severities. Angular, harsh, no softened curves to please. Set tears within the eyes to make them shine, and furrows on the brow, deep, stern, yet fine. Gaunt, awkward, tall, no courtier of ease, the trousers bulging at the bony knees. Long nose, large mouth, but ah, the light divine of truth, the light that set a people free burning upon it in a steady flame as sunset fires a white peak on the sky. Ah, God, to leave it nameless and yet see men looking weep and bow themselves and cry, Enough! Enough! We know thy statue's name. A poem from Me to You by Ella Higginson Upon a statue left nameless, yet all know thy statue's name. They did in 1898. In the London of 2020, they know not and they care not. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Charles Washer, a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Illinois, says, love the content. Thank you for that, Charles. Thank you. It's been a little difficult uh, under these last few months, uh, but I, so I appreciate that. Love the content. When you have no shared national story left, what do you have? How do we start serious civil conversation about what the corporate folks call a carve-out? I don't see enough discussion about solutions, especially since some parties in this are not coming to the table honestly. Uh, that's an excellent phrase, Charles, shared national story. When you're rejecting Columbus and Lincoln and William McKinley and Kate Smith and Stephen Foster and the national anthem and the Constitution, what's left? Uh, the mobs on the street don't want a civil conversation, as you put it, because they're rejecting America, or at any rate, America as it's been understood since 1776. And they want a new 4th of July for a new America uh, that starts now. And it might be the bee's knees, the cat's pyjamas, the bestiest bestie country that's ever existed, or it might be a total disaster. But they're clear on one thing, that the old America is over. They don't want it. Uh and they're not going to put up with it any longer. I've spent a lot of time in places where, as I mentioned, I think, during the Monk debate in Toronto a couple of years back, in the scheme of things, the differences are peripheral, but they nevertheless cause intractable problems. 
uh, because there was, in your phrase, no shared national story. The difference between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants is minimal. The difference between Quebec Francophones and Canadian Anglophones is minimal. The difference... Uh, between Bosnian Christians and Bosnian Muslims was likewise minimal for centuries until it became murderous and genocidal because of the lack of a shared national story. What's the shared national story now? The Constitution? Land of the free, home of the brave, the whole kit and caboodle is regarded by Generation Woke as a fetish club for old white men. Uh, does the trusty fundy woke starpo really have a lot in common with Black Lives Matter? Do uh, Indians who loathe Columbus have a lot in common with blacks who revile Confederate generals? Or Mexicans who want La Raza to take over the Southwest? No, not at all. But they do have a so-called shared national story, which is their rejection of America to date. And for now, that's enough. Likewise, in Britain, uh, blacks aren't particularly exercised about Churchill. Indeed, if you've ever met a British subject called Winston, you'll know he's generally a West Indian who was so christened by patriotic parents in the years after the Second World War. It's usually Hindus. Uh, from the Indian subcontinent who are antipathetic to Churchill for various reasons. But for the purposes of revolution, for the purposes of an assault on history, the internal contradictions don't matter because sticking it to Whitey is enough of a shared national story for now. Nevertheless, in the long run, you can't turn 60% of a nation into the bad guys without a portion of them figuring, if that's the new social compact... Include them out. Uh, the combination of factors, demographic transformation, the remorselessness of mass immigration, the lack of assimilation, an education system wholly in the control of hardcore cultural Marxist social engineers, the institutionalization of grievance that ensures the permanence of grievance, all these factors make it highly unlikely that a union of 50 states and heading to 400 million people can survive. If that bleak assessment is correct, yes, Americans should talk honestly about solutions, because when there's a total 100% rejection of the shared national story, of the shared past, there's not going to be a shared future. Mark Stein's Last Call. Had Jean Raspail died half a century ago, he would have been remembered as a charming and civilized French adventurer who led a three-year Pan-American trek from Tierra del Fuego to Alaska and followed it up with an expedition to the heart of the Inca Empire in Peru. La radiodiffusion télévision française présente Le Monde comme il va. Ce soir, au pays des Incas. Une expédition de l'équipe Marquette chez les Indiens du Pérou avec Jean Raspail, Guy Morance et Pierre Lerouzic. Mmh. 
great theme of Monsieur Aspai's travels in the 50s and 60s was native populations who did not survive their encounter with modernity. It was an eccentric obsession for the time, but then for Jean Aspai, the son of a factory manager educated at Catholic schools, all the obsessions were a little odd. He was a French monarchist. And unlike most of that barely detectable demographic, he took it seriously enough to write novels contemplating a restoration of the royal house. He liked shorter-lived kingdoms too, such as La Royaume d'Arrokeni et de Patagonie, the kingdom of Araucania and Patagonia, which was declared in late 1862 and lasted barely a year. But there have been many French pretenders to that throne in the century and a half since, and Jean Raspail was happy to serve as the unrecognised kingdom's consul general to the French Republic. He enjoyed Araucania and Patagonia's official royal anthem too. The man who went in search of lost kingdoms and fallen empires across the oceans soon found himself contemplating one much closer to home. One day in 1971, he was in southern France, the Côte d'Azur, perhaps the most exquisite example of France's genius for sheer Epicurean perfection. But Monsieur Aspai looked out across the Mediterranean and wondered what would happen if those from the less blessed parts of the world were to land en masse on the pristine beaches of the Riviera. And as the Incas could not survive their contact with modernity, he wondered whether Europe and Christendom would survive their contact with the new primitivism. And so he wrote a novel with a title drawn from the book of Revelation. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints. The camp of the saints. So what in the world is this thing? It turns out it's an obscure novel from 1973. It's a French novel called The Camp of the Saints. And it is about um, an invasion of the white world and the end of the white world when uh, non-white people come to Europe. Oh wow, that's interesting. Now, this is apparently popular in the alt-right. Uh, it's been popular in the far right for a long time in Europe and America. It, it, very rich uh, right-wing philanthropist, fun to reprint this from time to time. Uh, so even if it's not making money, they uh, want to subsidize this, this kind of propaganda. So, well, okay, what's in the book? Well, uh, they want to ask Stanford University French professor about this uh, and 
They're familiar with the book and they explain it this way. This book is racist in the literal sense of the term. It uses race as the main characterization of characters. It describes the takeover of Europe by waves of immigrants that wash ashore like the plague. Okay, that sounds pretty bad. It's about to get worse. Back in 1975, Kirkus Reviews did a review of this book when it first came out. Here's how they described it. They said, the publishers are presenting the camp of the saints as a major event, and it probably is. In much the same sense that Mein Kampf was a major event. Damn. Okay, wow, wow. Oh my, wow, double wow. That's a fella called Jenk Wieger, host of the Young Turks podcast. And a Bernie Sanders supporter who had to resign from a group called the Justice Democrats when past uh, crude sexist and racist comments resurfaced. He hasn't read Le Conte des Saints, The Camp of the Saints, although it's a comparatively short and very readable novel. But perhaps it lacks the frat boy vulgarity of his own bigotry and racism. Mr. Wieger is wrong to call it an obscure book dependent on sugar daddy publishers. It's estimated to have sold over half a million copies, which is far more than 99.9999% of all books sell. It's not Harry Potter, but by comparison, the average new book in America today sells 250 copies in its first year. Everyone who reads that new book would fit comfortably in a small Broadway theatre socially distanced. The Camp of the Saints is a famous novel and a best-selling novel because it was, as our friend Lionel Shriver described it, appalling and prescient. It is prescient because Monsieur Raspail's vision that day on the Côte d'Azur has since come literally true. You're sunbathing topless on a continental beach and that day's migrants suddenly wash up. Tourists and sunbathers in Spain were astonished to see a boatload of immigrants float ashore on a Spanish beach and then make a dash for dry land. The video, which was taken by a beachgoer, shows a black inflatable boat packed with apparent immigrants from Africa on a Spanish beach near Cadiz, a little over seven and a half miles from the coast of North Africa. You can see people jumping from the boat as it approached the shoreline. Then many of the refugees are seen desperately running up the beach, while others pulled the boat ashore. The last time I was on the beach at Saint-Tropez, French soldiers patrolled with automatic weapons between the tanned ranks of nude bathers. It was the summer of the Bastille Day truck attack by one of the Alahu Akbar guys. This spring, the daily boatloads of fraudulent refugees have continued arriving on England's shores throughout what for uh, actual residence of the United Kingdom has been a very tightly policed lockdown. But that's not even the most prescient part of the camp of the saints. Here's the author himself. Ils sont un million. Ils sont désarmés. Ils sont, uh, ils sont faibles. They're et one million ils, strong. Ils, ils they're unarmed. They're weak. They're sympathetic. They invite pity. But they are still a million. And if we let them land, there are millions more behind them. That's the conundrum of the camp of the saints. The book is less about the invaders than the invaded, the political class, the intellectuals, the bishops, the TV interviewers who seize on a hack minister's characterization of the incoming third world as desperate people just seeking a chance to christen the invasion as the last chance armada.
The Pope issues some mawkish sob-sister drivel, as today's Holy Father does. Governments pervert public policy into moral narcissism, as Angela Merkel did five years ago. We can do this, was her slogan, which may well be true, but the proper consideration of statecraft is whether it's prudent to do it. And Monsieur Aspire's invented invasion was of a general population, old, young, men, women, adults, children. When it actually landed in Europe in 2015, the real force was an army. Young, military-aged men who had left their parents and wives and children behind. To the point that Sweden, Sweden found itself in one year with a sex imbalance among the late teenage cohort it had taken China 40 years to achieve. At some instinctive level, the elites know this will be the end of the Europe they claim to love, but cannot rouse themselves to prevent it. Indeed, they welcome it as the swiftest way to extinguish themselves. When he wrote the book, the generation of young soldiers who had fought the Second World War were just entering middle age, late 40s, 50s, but Jean Aspie discerned nevertheless a fatal innovation in our society. Look at the scenes on the West's streets today and listen to just one paragraph from his novel. Day by day, month by month, doubt by doubt, law and order become fascism, education, constraint, work, alienation, revolution, mere sport, leisure, a privilege of class, marijuana, a harmless weed, family, a stifling hothouse, affluence, oppression, success, a social disease, sex, an innocent pastime, youth, a permanent tribunal, maturity, the new senility, discipline, an attack on personality. Christianity and the West and white skin. That was controversial in the 70s. Today it's unsayable. I mentioned merely the book's title on Tucker Carlson tonight a year or two back, and that was enough for the shrieking pyjama boys at Media Matters to demand I be cancelled simply for naming a book these know-nothings have never read. They don't need to read it, because they know you're not meant to read it, or even name it. Jean Raspail was a courtly, civilised man, a genuine intellectual, who won almost every girl in the French state can bestow, the Grand Prix du Romain and the Grand Prix de Littérature from the Académie Française, but the enduring clarity of Le Comte des Saints made him a controversial character, even though, as he always explained, his life's work was all of a piece. Uh... Vous avez dit que j'étais explorateur. J'ai passé 30 ans à, à voyager dans des dans des civilisations et des, des peuples petits en voie de disparition dans terre de feu. You said I'm an explorer. I spent 30 years traveling among endangered peoples and civilizations, especially in Tierra del Fuego. I know very well what an endangered civilization is. I fought against it. A disappearing civilization has to defend itself before it disappears. To all of which his young French interviewer responds. Jean Raspail, c'est qu'on pourrait dire qu'une civilisation euh, à son apogée, forte, 
sur d'elle-même euh, n'aurait pas peur de l'autre. That's not how Jean Raspail saw it. From his introduction to the 1985 edition. For the West is empty, even if it has not yet become really aware of it. An extraordinarily inventive civilization, surely the only one capable of meeting the challenges of the third millennium. The West has no soul left at every level. Nations, races, cultures, as well as individuals, it is always the soul that wins the decisive battles. It is only the soul that forms the weave of golden brass from which the shields that save the strong are fashioned. I can hardly discern any soul in us. At every level, nations, races, cultures, it is always the soul that wins the decisive battles. As we surely know, after spending two decades throwing the world's most expensive missiles and drones at Afghanistan. Dead a few weeks shy of his 95th birthday, a man who made a dark prophecy and lived to see its bleak accuracy, Jean Raspail. <laughs> As national anthems go, I rather like that one. For the short-lived kingdom of Araucania and Patagonia, composed by Guillermo Frick in 1864. That is it for our show today. We had a busy weekend at Stein Online, including Kathy Shadle's Clippity Clip Saturday movie date and a Sunday song spot in which we played Misty, not for me, but for Clint Eastwood. We also continued my serialization of our latest tale for our time, G.K. Chesterton's metaphysical thriller, The Man Who Was Thursday. If you were too busy burning down Wendy's over the weekend, I hope you'll want to check out one or three of the foregoing as a new week begins. I'll be back this evening for the conclusion of The Man Who Was Thursday. Hope you'll join me. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.
All rights reserved.